and let's pray together this morning. Lord, we do know with our whole hearts that is because of what your son accomplished on the cross that we get to be your people. That in that great display of love, um, that we get to be yours. And God, I pray that as we are gathered here this morning, as we worship you, as we hear from your word, um, that we would revel and soak in the deepness of your love for us. God, may it um, overwhelm and overflow upon us this morning. Lord, I just thank you for all that you're doing in our body, for the excitement of um, the summer to come, of the connection groups that are starting, of summer camp that is um, has so much preparation going on for it. Um, we thank you for what you've done through trips to Mexico and Liberia. We pray for the team um, as they travel home from their um, on their final leg this morning, that you would be with them, that you would give them safety. And God, we um, are so excited to hear of the work that you've done um, these past 10-ish days um, in Liberia. Um, and we cannot wait to hear of the good, the good news that comes um, from your faithful servants as they return um, back, to, back to Cupertino. Well, we're going to take a moment to read a scripture from Galatians um, 3 to prepare us for the message that Bernard is going to share. So here are these words um, to the Galatian church and to us. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor f and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the set time set by his father, so also, when we were underage, we were in slavery, under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Ava, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Will Bernard come and share with us this morning? Well, good morning to all of you. Uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, has been uh, quite influential in my thinking. Uh, in that book, he describes the uh, four different Greek words that are used for love. So four different types of love. Uh, three of them are natural loves. First is storge. This is family love, affection between family members. Secondly, there is philia love of friendship. Uh, third, there is eros, romantic love full of passionate desire. And then the fourth love is an unnatural love. 
a supernatural love, a distinctively Christian love, agape, self-giving, selfless uh, love. And uh, this week I've been reflecting on the, the first of these loves, storge, family love. The empathy and the affection within a family between parents and children and between the children as siblings. As I said, it's a natural love. It's usually very strong and permanent. It lasts uh, throughout a lifetime. We will do anything for family, as the saying goes. Blood is thicker than water, says the proverb. But sometimes family love breaks down. As kids, siblings often squabble and engage in rivalry, but then they'll make up. But adult children may become estranged from one another or from their parents. Um, children of divorce, young or adult, often find it difficult to navigate loyalty between their both parents. But in healthy families, family solidarity is extremely strong and there are a lot, but there are lots of reasons why this family solidarity can break down. And then there are the skeletons in the closet. Most families have these. Uh, there are certainly some in my family closet. Sue and I occasionally watch Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates Jr. on PBS. And, uh, he and his, as he and his team dig deep into family history, they inevitably unearth surprises. It wouldn't be an interesting program if there were no surprises. Some of these surprises are good. Hitherto unknown heroes who one is proud to own as an ancestor. They confer glory and honor on the family line. Other surprises are questionable. Villains and shady characters are exposed. They cast a cloud of shame over the family line. So honor or shame. Children can feel under tremendous pressure to increase the honor of the family and not bring shame. Parents can seek vicarious honor through their kids. So a family can be a healthy environment for flourishing, for resilience, or a family can be toxic, riven with dysfunctionality, even if it looks good on the outside. So happy families are not always happy families. And we certainly see this in scripture. Uh, the book of Genesis is full of basket case families. Um, in the early chapters, this is understandable as humanity lives east of Eden. But the dysfunctionality continues after God calls Abraham to begin a new family through whom the Lord will restore blessing to humanity and to the world. And the behavior of Abram, of Isaac, of Jacob, and of his 12 sons is not promising material for a new humanity. They were close kin. They were all descendants of Abraham and Sarah. But healthy family love was in very short supply. So the clan of Abraham is not the poster child of a healthy family. And then the New Testament continues the family language into the church. Only three times in the New Testament are the Jesus followers called Christians. The usual term for the people of Jesus in the New Testament is brothers and sisters. People who had no blood connection with one another considered themselves to be siblings, to be part of a family. Why? Well, we'll look at that today. 
So far in the book of Hebrews, the preacher has shown the superiority of the Son to the angels. The Son was with God in the beginning before the angels were created, indeed, through whom the angels were created. But he became lower than the angels for a little while, incarnate as Jesus the man. And then the Son, still now as the man Jesus, has been exalted above the angels, crowned with glory and honor. He has entered into God's glory. He's entered into glory in two respects. He's entered into God's full presence, which is glory, and he has been enthroned with glory and honor, befitting the king. At the end of last week's passage, we saw that the turning point between being made lower than the angels and exaltation above the angels was because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. How does this work? How sh why should I gain from his reward? How does the work of Christ accrue to us? Well, the preacher now continues his sermon to show us how in chapter two, verses 10 through 18. And he develops his argument in four stages, beginning with an introduction in verse 10. So reading uh, Hebrews chapter two, verse 10 out of the NIV, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. So the son has already entered into God's glory, returning to that mutual love that the persons of the Godhead enjoyed from before the beginning of time. But God has greater ambitions. He wants to bring many more sons and daughters into that glory. Now, like last week, we have a question here of gender. Uh, ESV has sons, whereas NIV and most other recent versions have sons and daughters. Uh, yes, I know that we sang uh, Bring Many Sons to Glory, but uh, Stuart Townend was working within the constraints of his, uh, of his hymn that he was writing. Uh, in both Hebrew and Greek, the word sons can be gender-specific or gender-inclusive, depending on context. And here it is clearly inclusive, sons and daughters. And I think it should be translated as such. And again, this is one reason I preach out of the NIV, to make it clear to women that you are fully included. God wants you just as much in his family, in Christ Jesus. And I think English Bibles should make this clear. Now, in the ancient world, and up until recently, it was only the male sons who were heirs, able to inherit their father's estate. Although, back in the book of Numbers, we have the instance of Zelophehad's daughters who received special permission to inherit their father's estate, given that he had no sons. Now, inheritance is a major theme in the book of Hebrews. God has appointed his son, heir of all things. The son has inherited a name above all others. We who follow Jesus are about to inherit salvation, and on and on. And this inheritance is for men and women equally when we enter into Christ. God wants to bring many sons and daughters to glory. He doesn't just restrict the inheritance to a few. He doesn't admit just 144,000 and then close the door, as a number of different groups believe. No, God wants many sons and daughters in his presence. 
He's not a God of scarcity. He's a God of abundance, and his abundant glory can encompass a vast multitude of people, of sons and daughters. How do we reach that glory? Well, God has provided a leader to bring us into his glory, the pioneer of our salvation. A pioneer is one who goes first, who goes out in front and opens up the way for others to follow. Elsewhere in the book, Jesus is described as our forerunner. He has gone ahead, entered into God's presence on our behalf, and has opened up the way for us to follow. And following Jesus is a major theme of this book. Now, the son is qualified to function as a pioneer because God has made him perfect through suffering. But wait a minute, you guys say. Wasn't Jesus perfect throughout his life? Well, we tend to think of perfect and its opposite imperfect as polarities of good and evil. But that's not the primary meeting. The polarity is between complete and incomplete. So, for example, in grammar, the imperfect tense is used for action that is incomplete, the perfect for tense for action that is completed. Now, the eternal son entered into Israel's history and, and human history as a man, as a human being, and he needed to live out his earthly life as a human, faithful to the end, to the point of completion. His path lay through suffering. He suffered in the wilderness, when he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and was hungry. And then the tempter, the devil, came and tempted or tested him three times. But Jesus remained faithful. He resisted the tempter with the words which God had spoken in the past through the fathers to, um, via the prophets. He emerged perfect. He emerged victorious over the tempter. Then he suffered again in his passion beginning with the agony in the garden when he submitted himself in obedience to the Father's will. He was faithful and obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And in the resurrection, he came out of the grave, vindicated by his Father and victorious over death. He was made perfect through suffering. He had completed his trajectory as a human being on earth. Now, the preacher will reiterate this in chapter 5. We read, Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey, that is, all who hear him. Hear what God has spoken through the Son. Now, it was fitting for God to do this. Yet many find this to be not fitting at all. It is unthinkable, unimaginable that God should do this. It is inconceivable that God should suffer and die, let alone in a way that conferred maximum humiliation and shame. Early graffiti shows that the Roman world mocked Christians for worshiping a crucified God. Muslims have high regard for Jesus, considering him the greatest prophet. But his death by crucifixion is one of several reasons why they cannot accept that he is the Son of God. It is beneath the majesty of God to enter the world, even more so to suffer and die. Yet yeah, that's what happened. 
Now, God is the one for whom everything exists and through whom everything exists. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, but he sent his son into the world to surrender all power, to submit himself to all powers, even the power of death. And it was fitting for God to make the pioneer of our salvation perfect through suffering. We bow in awe and wonder. Now the preacher next explores the solidarity between the son and the many sons and daughters in verses 11 through 13. We read, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children you have given me. Jesus is the one who sanctifies, and we who follow him are those being sanctified or made holy. Now, to sanctify means to set apart as holy and thus fit for God's presence, who is holy. Sanctification is the work of a priest. And the priestly ministry of Jesus will be the center of this sermon. But we're not there yet. First, how is the son qualified to serve as priest so that we might be sanctified? How is it that the sanctified and the sanctified are of one? How is it that we are knit together so that he can act on our behalf and for our benefit? Well, because we are of one, the son is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And here the ESV has simply brothers, while other recent translation have brothers and sisters. Uh, this time the ESV offers a footnote, uh, brothers and sisters, stating that the plural Greek word refers to siblings in a family. But women, my sisters, you don't belong just in a footnote, you belong in the text itself. Brothers and sisters, Jesus identifies himself with us. He's not ashamed to have us tag along with him. Indeed, he's out front pioneering the way for us to follow. He is pleased for us to be his younger siblings. He is pleased for us to be his peeps. And he affirms this with three quotations from the Old Testament, each spoken in his voice. The first is from Psalm 22, the famous psalm that begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But after a long lament about his dereliction, the psalmist turns to praise for the Lord's deliverance. We read these words, heard these words as our call to worship. He proclaims and praises the Lord's greatness to his brothers and sisters in the assembly. Now in the psalm, this is the gathered congregation of Israel. In Hebrews, it is those whom follow Jesus, those whom he considers his younger siblings. God, his God and Father, has been faithful and has vindicated him by delivering him from death. The second quotation, I'll put my trust in him, is from David's song of praise, when God delivered him from his enemies. He had taken refuge in God, his rock. And three centuries later, Isaiah said the same thing in the face of invasion by Assyria. David the king, Isaiah the prophet, 
Jesus the Son, each placed their trust in God, and God delivered them. And so Jesus will proclaim the praises of God to his brothers and sisters. And the third quote is also from Isaiah, indeed, from the very next verse. With his trust placed in God, Isaiah can say, here am I and the children God has given me. Now, God had given him two sons with significant names. She'er Yashuv, meaning a remnant shall return, and uh, the wonderful Mahal Shalal Hashbaz, meaning quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. And these two children with their names were signs from God given to inspire confidence, to inspire faith. But for Jesus, these children are the brothers and sisters whom God has given him. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters and to present us to his Father. In the upper room, Jesus prayed to his Father, for those whom you have given me, as Sean talked about recently. He prayed, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. In the third section, the preacher describes the incarnation, why it was that God became man, why God became human. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. All humans share together in blood and flesh. Externally, we may look different. We may have different skin color, different color of eyes and hair, different height, and many other things. But beneath the surface, we are all the same in flesh and blood. The Son, therefore, in his solidarity with us, partook of the same blood and flesh. He became fully human. He became like the children as their brother. He became like us. The eternal son present in the Godhead before the beginning of time stepped down into our world. Agent of all creation, he entered into creation as a creature, as a human. And the Greek text here is triply emphatic about this, in, this identification, although only the NASB captures it. He himself likewise also partook of the same, our same flesh and blood, so fully did he identify with us. His identification with us in incarnation had a dual purpose. Firstly, it was to nullify the power of the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, the accuser. And he did this by his death. He entered into death itself to fight death. And he could do so because death had no claim on him. And so death had to let him go. And in that, death died the death of death in the death of Christ. And the result of this is to liberate all who were enslaved all their lives by the fear of death. People live in fear of death. They want to avoid it. More and more people live beyond 100, thanks to medical advances and better nutrition, but many researchers and investors have much more ambitious goals to postpone or even abolish human death. And they're active here in Silicon Valley. 
The dream is to reach uh, longevity escape velocity, where life expectancy of an individual increases faster than the time making to make those gains. Then you live forever. But it's in the death of Christ that death has been defeated, not a medical technology. In his resurrection that a human has entered into the new creation. In his exaltation that a human has entered into the eternal world of God's presence. And in the gift of the spirit that we are invited to enter into new life also. And the preacher says it's not angels who need this liberation. They're not part of the material world that is subject to decay and death. It is the seed of Abraham his descendants who need this help. After sin and death had entered the world through the unfaithful disobedience of Adam and Eve, it was to Abraham that God made a promise of a new beginning. Aged Abraham and his barren wife would have a son who would become a great nation and through whom God would restore blessing to the world. God was faithful to that promise. He gave Abraham to Isaac. To Isaac he gave Jacob. To Jacob he gave 12 sons who multiplied to become the children of Israel. And God took them to be his people. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell with you. But Israel failed to enter into its inheritance, as we'll see in the next uh, chapter and a half of Hebrews. Has God's purpose failed? Well, in Christ Jesus, his faithful son, born into Abraham's line, God helps Abraham's descendants. Now, help here really is a weak translation um, because the verb implies reaching out and grabbing a hold of someone. And it's used this way later in the sermon. In chapter eight, referring to Israel's exodus from Egypt, God says, I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. He's quoting Jeremiah 31. So Jesus, our pioneer, saves us by taping a hold of us and pulling us out of death, leading us to glory. Now the image that I chose for this week's sermon and that uh, was in the e-news and is on the um, cover of the uh, first page of the worship uh, guide uh, is the anastasis icon. Uh, this particular one is in the Kora Church in Istanbul. Uh, some of you have been with me to Turkey. I've taken you to see this. Um, within the Eastern Orthodox Church, an icon is not a painting. It's a theological picture that is written, not painted. And anastasis is the Greek word for resurrection. So the anastasis icon is the icon of resurrection. And here, the risen Jesus has grabbed a hold of Adam and Eve and is pulling them out of their tombs, pulling them out of death into resurrection life. And you see the doors of death have been broken down because death has been trampled. It is the seed of Abraham that the risen Lord pulls out of death. But who is the seed of Abraham? In the Old Testament, it was Israel, Abram's physical descendants. But in the New Testament, membership in the seed of Abram is refined and expanded. As we heard in our scripture reading from Galatians 3 and 4. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If we are in Christ, symbolized by baptism, dying to our old self, rising to new life in Christ, then we are heirs, Abraham's children, heirs of the promise made to Abraham so long ago. We are brothers and sisters following our elder brother, the Lord Jesus. The son became like us, entering into our story so he could raise us to be in God's story. His story of how he is restoring life, blessing and shalom to a world sunk into slavery and death. Our older brother has taken our hand and is leading us out of death towards God's glory. Then the final two verses, the preacher concludes with what happens when Jesus, our pioneer who's gone before us, enters into glory, into God's presence. Verses 17 and 18. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In verse 10, we read that it was fitting for God to perfect his son through suffering. But here it was necessary for the son to be made like us, his brothers and sisters, to be made like us in every way. And the reason for this necessity is so that he might become high priest. Now Israel had three covenant offices, three different roles mediating the relationship between God and his people, the prophet, the priest, and the king. Each was one of the people, but each also interfaced with God. The king ruled over God's people on God's behalf, leading with righteousness and justice to ensure a flourishing society. The prophet spoke God's word to the king or to the people. And then the priest represented the people in service to God. And this service was a liturgical action conducted in God's presence in the tabernacle and later the temple. The various sacred rites that allowed a holy God to dwell in the midst of a sinful people. Jesus is our high priest. He is both merciful and faithful. He is faithful towards God, unlike some former high priests who had not been so. For example, God pronounced judgment on the house of Eli, the priest, for the wickedness of his sons in their priestly duties. And he promised that he would raise up a faithful priest. And this faithful priest is Jesus. He is also a merciful high priest. The service of the priests in the tabernacle and the temple mediated God's mercy to his sinful people. God had revealed himself as the compassionate and gracious God, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And that mercy is now mediated to his people through Jesus, our merciful high priest. And the result of Jesus being the merciful and faithful high priest is that he is able to make atonement for the sins of the people. 
Sin separates us from a holy God. And it needs to be dealt with if we're to be brought into God's glory. Dealing with sin requires both expiation and propitiation. In expiation, the sin itself is removed. In propitiation, God's wrath is removed, sin is removed. He is satisfied and the relationship is fully restored. Jesus, our high priest, accomplishes both. Now in Israel's liturgical calendar, the, the most significant and solemn day was Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. The high priest would enter through the veil into the most holy place of the tabernacle and then the temple. And he would take with him two types of blood. He would take a bull's blood for his own sin and he would take a goat's blood for the people's sin. And there inside the most holy place he would sprinkle the blood on the, on the lid covering the Ark of the Covenant. The lid that was known as the atonement cover or the mercy seat. And he would thus make atonement for himself, for the priests, and for the whole people of God. But he would have to do the same the next year, every year. Now, the service of Jesus as our merciful and faithful high priest is the major theme of Hebrews covering the extensive central section, the last part of chapter four, all the way through to near the end of chapter 10. Jesus is the high priest. He is also the offering. Being sinless, he does not need to present blood for his own purification, like the high priest had to offer blood for his purification. Instead, Jesus presents his own blood for our atonement. He is also the mercy seat, the atonement cover on which that blood is sprinkled. He is the place where God's righteousness and human sinfulness meet. And having accomplished purification for sins, as we read at the beginning of chapter one, Jesus has sat down at God's right hand, that part of his ministry complete. And now God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. But Jesus has an ongoing ministry there at God's right hand on our behalf still as a priest. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Verse 18. Now, the specific temptation of the hearers of this sermon that is Hebrews, are, the, what they're facing is a temptation to turn back from following Jesus, to give up following that way. And so the preacher now in chapters three and the first half of chapter four will turn to an extended section of exhortation and warning. He encourages hearers to hold firmly to our confidence in the hope in which we glory. And he warns them of the danger of failing, of falling along the way like Israel in the wilderness and thus failing to enter into God's rest. And then after those exhortations and warnings, he will return to Jesus as the high priest to begin the big central section of the book. And he will pick up at exactly the same point here at the end of chapter two. So chapter four, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, God has himself provided for us the pioneer of our salvation. Jesus has already entered into God's glory, has already made atonement for us, and now intercedes on our behalf. Our older brother has opened the way for us to follow. And as we see Jesus, Christ before us, Christ before us so we see him all of his glory, Christ before us also is the one who has gone before, our forerunner. We are encouraged to keep following him. Well, I invite the band to come up as I wrap up here. John the Revelator heard the number of people sealed as belonging to God. 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he saw the people gathered before God's throne and the Lamb, a multitude beyond counting from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They wore robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. He will spread his glory over us, for he is bringing many sons and daughters into that glory. The Lamb has conquered. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.